and we're always going to be a work in progress is how I, I think about the world. The world is a big place and the world around us changes absolutely constantly. So we have to learn new things all the time. We've got to make new mistakes, we've got to fail fast and we've got to be brave to learn new things and, and keep up with the world. So for that, what you need is not the expertise. For that, you need the right attitude. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Private Equity Power Talks podcast. I'm your producer, Richard Aliff. We're incredibly excited to be joined by Iris Software Group CEO, Alona Mortimer Seeker. Alona's journey so far has been an incredible story of growth and personal development. At the age of 16, Alona emigrated to the UK from Albania through an international baccalaureate scholarship. She eventually went on to become a chartered accountant and held multiple senior leadership roles in big four and PE-backed businesses. In 2016, Alona joined Iris as CFO, transitioned to COO in 2018, and finally to CEO in 2019. During her tenure, Iris has seen incredible amounts of growth. The most recent exit in 2018 was worth £1.8 billion, and since then, the value of the business has grown to over £3 billion. In this podcast, we discuss Alona's approach to M&A, expansion into the US, how to successfully transition from an exec into the CEO role, and her approach to hiring. Now, over to Sam and Alona. We know a little bit about Iris Software. Everyone knows quite a lot about Iris Software in the private equity world because it's been private equity back for about 20 years, I think, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And Sarah and I were talking uh, before you came in, just, I think that's probably a record in terms of the number of transactions it's been through. I think seven, eight, maybe nine, I'm like, but a lot. A lot of transactions. And I think the important thing to say there is HG, who are our current owners, have been on and off, more on than off, yeah. backing Iris, uh, which is really a massive accolade to the business. They are a fantastic, fantastic investor, probably the best in Europe in software and tech. Uh, so we're very, very lucky to have HG own us and help us grow and bring that expertise to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and under their ownership, Iris has trebled each time in terms of its exit efforts. Um, last time we had an exit was in 2018. Uh, so that was £1.3 billion, pounds, which at the time was the highest ever multiple anybody had achieved in the UK and third highest in Europe. Um, in the software. In the software space. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are now sort of four years into that ownership and the business is worth over three billion pounds now, so it's it's trebled it's in incredible. time. In, in I value think HG again. first invested, I don't know if my research is absolutely spot on, but I think they first invested in 2011? Yes. So actually they've been around for more than 20 years, yeah. So that your business has grown as Not HG more. as HG has grown in terms of their fund size and transaction size. They invested before then. They invested in 20, 2004, actually. Did so they? that's why they've been around right. for 18 years, sorry. So 2011 was one of their last letter investments. Yeah. So they've been selling, I guess the business is going from one fund to another. And one HG fund to another HG yeah, fund. Yeah, so there's always a th- it's always a third-party transaction anyway. So last time we sold, uh, we did move from... HG6 into Saturn, which obviously is owned by completely different investors. So for all intents and purposes, it is a third party sale because the investments of HG6 needed the right return and the investors of Saturn needed to pay the right valuation. But also new investors are introduced at each stage. So uh, we had ICG come in as a co-investor in 2018. Mm -hmm. So we're very lucky to have them on our board as well. Yeah. So some facts and figures uh, on on Iris Software, um, got about 3,000 employees. Yes, we do, yeah. Um, international markets that you're servicing, uh, obviously the UK, Australia, Canada, big development center in India. In India, yeah, a resourcing center actually, which acts also as the extension to our customers. So mm-hmm. particularly the accountants of the UK, when they've got busy seasons, then um, our team in India will pick up the work that somebody in the UK would do mm-hmm. uh, to sort of effectively elevate any pressure on those busy times when you can't get access to, to staff. And they're qualified and they know how to use not just Iris software, but most of the accountancy software is out there. And then I read one in five people in the UK 
are paid via Iris payroll software? Yeah, so I mean, Iris is a big business now. So I joined Iris in 2016 and we had about 700 people then and we made about 45 million pounds of EBITDA. And now we make almost 150 million pounds of EBITDA and we have 3000 people. And um, yes, yeah, so what we do do is we are market leaders in every market we operate in. Uh, we sell software or, or tech enabled services, particularly to the accountancy sector. So anything an accountant needs to run their own practice as well as to provide better advice and serve their end customers. Uh, we're the market leaders with more than half the accountancy firms in the UK as our customers, about 29,000 CPAs and firms overall um, being serviced by Iris. And then we also are a market leader in education where we have 50% of the UK schools or England schools use us, 12,000 schools in total, uh, which is a massive responsibility really. So I do feel we, have, we play a massive part in improving sort of the outcomes of the next generation. Yeah. Um, and then, and we, again, we give the schools everything they need to run the school as well as um, improve the outcomes of those children. So from sort of HR payroll finance software to run the school to MIS, parent engagement payments type software that really tells the school how their child is behaving and what they need to get better grades and better support. Um, and then we are also market leaders in HCM, which I would call a horizontal rather than a vertical. Mm -hmm. uh, we sell to accountants, we sell to schools, but also to SMEs out there. And yes, around 6 million payslips globally. One in five people in the UK get paid by an Iris payslip. So check your payslip because you might be paid by Iris without knowing that you are. And more recently, in the last couple of years, we have moved to the US as well. So uh, we traditionally have been a UK only business. Mm -hmm. We're 44 years old, 44 year old software business, which is am amazing, I think. Yeah. Um, and then two years ago, we moved to the US and now the US is already $85 million of revenue for Iris and 20% of the group. And already we are the biggest disruptor in the CPA space there because the US market is effectively owned by a duopoly of CCH and TR, Thomson Reuters. And then the rest of the players are pretty fragmented and small. So at $85 million, Iris is the contender. Mm -hmm. um, and we are using all the DNA that we've learned in the UK over the last 44 years to succeed out there. And it's quite unique for a UK business to make it in the US. And I'm going to touch every word. <laughs> but we are word. doing amazingly, amazingly well. We have a great set of products. We've acquired six businesses, all best of breed. We now have 300 people there, about 6,000 customers. The business is growing double digits. So mm -hmm. we're super excited about the prospect of the Americas as part of our overall group strategy. So that's, that's a big part of this chapter of value creation? This new chapter, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So we traditionally grow about 19% every year. Uh, we've grown at 19% over the last 19 years. So we grow through every recession. Uh, we've got a great business model because what we sell um, is really mission critical and our customers need it to run their yeah. business. So um, for as long as we look after those customers and for as long as we continue to provide amazing software that's well integrated, that keeps them compliant, that saves them time, um, then our customers continue to use us. So we're very, very lucky to have such high tenure of customers and very little attrition. Um, so we've always grown and on that sort of 18, 19% growth, half of it is organic and the other half is what I would call inorganic. So we have bought at 40 businesses just in my time at Iris. In your time? In my time at Iris. And we integrate them all and we welcome them into the yeah. Iris family, which is you know, probably the best part of my job, if I'm honest. I was, I was having a conversation like this with another CEO yesterday um, with our Excellence Program audience. So it's just you know, a group of 15 to 20 execs. And he, he was a founder. Uh, he built his business in the UK and, and in the US via acquisition. Smaller scale, I mean, yeah. you know, it's got to about 200 million EV. Um, I think he probably made about 40 acquisitions over 20 years. But he was saying he felt the success rate on his acquisitions was probably about one in three, one in four, really. Oh, wow. But but the the, the value that one would deliver. Would outweigh the easily learnings. Outweigh. Um, but in making 40 acquisitions, I mean, you've, you've probably de developed a real 
engine and process here for, for making them work? Maybe tell us a bit about how you've done that. Yes, so IRS is pretty, our strategy is pretty specific in that we want to be the market leaders in the markets we operate in rather than be, um, you know, operating in 10 or, 10 or so different markets and be number 10 player in those markets. We like to be number one, two or three player in the markets we're at. So what that means is that we have very deep expertise in what we do. Uh, but it also limits, if you like, the options that you have about who you can acquire because obviously you're being very specific about the market you want to be successful in. So our acquisitions are handpicked <laughs> and they are courted and nurtured over a very, very long period of time because right. we don't have a scattergun approach mm -hmm. of going and buying any business that might fit. We completely go and seek out strategically the particular business we want to buy and then spend time with management, the team beforehand because obviously those that particular business has to want to sell to you. They have options as well. So, and it's, you know, we're in the business of people, right? Businesses are run by people and you've got to understand people's motivations and build those relationships. So my first advice is, depending on your M&A strategy, if it is that you want a specific target, you've got to work at it and you've got to build those relationships before that target decides to sell. Because by the time they decide to sell, you are in a bidding process and you are in a bidding war. And then at that point in time, A, the price goes up because you're bidding against other people. But most importantly, you have less control over the outcome. Yeah. And you have more chance of losing that deal. So first advice is be specific about who you want to buy and then go and build those relationships and that value creation plan. So you create a vision for the acquisition about how they will grow faster, better with you than on their own. Mm -hmm. um, how, how, how in a... How much time do you give that? I mean, you're talking about a year, two Quite years, Quite a long years. time. Um, so you've got, I mean, we've got an M&A team of six people mm -hmm. uh, whose job is to literally scour the market. And then we've got MDs in each of our markets. So I've got president in North America, and then I've got an MD of accountancy, MD of HCM, MD of managed services, um, and then an MD of education as well. And their 50%, I would say, of their job is talk to customers, keep an eye on the market, figure out mm -hmm. uh, what are the businesses we might want to buy. Then you have a ton of intelligence from the commercial community because they're missing out on tenders or bids against the competitor. So that's how you find sort of the next set of people you might want to acquire. And then you've got your tech part of the business. So your engineering and product community who keep an eye out on products all the time, but also uh, form partnerships and commercial sort of integrations with partners because they know that we can't build something fast enough so at some point in time if our customers need it we've got to offer it to them through an API integration mm. again those partners become the next set of potential uh, targets to acquire one day so I've just come off a QBR quarterly business review meeting so we look at our strategy again on from an inorganic perspective and then we look at the target names and then we've got priorities over the next three months, six months, 12 months, longer than 12 months. So what are the targets that we are nurturing? Mm -hmm. So you've always got to keep a long eye on it. So that's sort of number one. Number two, you then have to have a really good integration team. Uh, being honest, Iris didn't used to have that. So sort of until three or four years ago, it grew through acquisitions without really integrating. And it still was able to make money through cross-sell. Uh, but at some point in time, you become too big a business um, and you need foundations to scale. <laughs> and the whole point of acquiring is that you have synergies, not just top line synergies, but some sort of cost synergies as well, where you do one thing the same way many times rather than the same thing 20 different times. Yeah. Um, so we have invested in the last three years quite a lot on our systems because with acquisitions, you get a new ERP and a new CRM and a new HR system. So we've put everybody on the same systems. Mm -hmm. And that's really important because you've got a single version of the truth. And whilst doing that, we also built a data warehouse. So whilst your system implementation is taking however many months that can take, um, we've got a data warehouse where all the data is fed overnight, even for any new acquisitions. So we have got ability to review how that acquisition is doing or where the white space is because right. that customer has bought 
two or three products from Iris and they might be happy with one but maybe not so happy with another and I can tell from my tickets in support for example so that view is important um, and then we put a ton of money on our products to make sure that whatever we acquire does integrate because again customers are not going to just buy two products from you because you're Iris they need to buy it if there's value for them and value comes through integration and saving them time mm -hmm. and making it more productive for them so that they key in the information once and then it appears, whether it's payroll and HR, for example, or finance and HR, it appears wherever it needs to appear through just one data input rather than lots of data inputs. So again, lots of investment in cloud and, and products and that investment in people as well to make sure that we do have a, you know, a culture to build upon. And we started with the basics of a mission, a vision, a set of values, which are, as you can see them, in our head office, yeah. laminated everywhere there in walls, yeah. in mugs and in cups, but they are also celebrated and they are part of our DNA on a daily basis. And as we acquire new acquisitions, we bring them onto that Iris culture and we onboard them. Mm. Um, so they have clarity and communication about how they will fit in the bigger puzzle of Iris without necessarily you know, telling them everything they need to do because we bought them because they were amazing Great in the what first doing, place, but hopefully they can find a greater avenue mm -hmm. to grow faster with Iris. So I would say you've got to have start having that investment to build a foundation and a platform upon which you can integrate. Because if you don't integrate anything, eventually you end up with 40 CRMs and ERPs. So what are you going to integrate it into? Yeah. Um, and once you've got that economies of scale and that foundation, um, that integration team becomes important. So at Iris, we have... Uh, an M&A integration team whose job is to get involved on sort of day minus 90. So before we've even, you know, the LOI stage, I would say, when we've really thought seriously about acquiring this business, all the way to day plus 365. So they are around for the whole first 12 months. And then within each of our departments, whether it's finance, HR, product, etc., there are one or two people whose full-time job is to focus on integration of new businesses we acquire because obviously we acquire quite a few so they do the integration whilst the M&A integration mm -hmm. team holds them to account and makes sure we're doing things as we said we would do in our playbook and in our integration plan and also that we are creating um, the value we said we would create so there is a VCP plan value creation plan that gets signed off at the point of acquisition mm -hmm. and we hold ourselves accountable to that sounds like a machine sounds amazing Maybe you, you, you must have had to learn how to do that, though. I mean, that's not, not you personally, but the business as it matured must have to spend a lot of time working out how to do this. I mean, our members, are, you know, many of them are buying builds. Um, we, we, I was talking to an integration director on one of our programs yesterday, and he was, I think that that business is probably about 500 million in revenue, 100 million of EBITDA. And he was, yeah. he was, he was saying exactly what you were just talking about in terms of his CRM challenge, and that they've got seven or eight different CRMs across the business. They, they haven't got a real visual in terms of where they are um, in their customer performance across the business. And he's trying to work out how to bring them together. It's so really tricky. And I think the trickiest bit is finding the right team and the right people that are willing to tackle that because it's not the most glorious part of your job. Because when you're changing systems, or you're redoing everybody's contract. So everybody is in this case on an IRIS contract or everybody is on an IRIS active directory from an IT perspective, or every product you have bought is marketed correctly with the right brand or every office is rebranded, et cetera. Mm. None of that is super exciting. And actually what happens is you're, I always describe it as if you're building foundations you are, you know, you live in a nice house, but you want your house to be a skyscraper one day and the foundations it's currently got are not gonna support it to become a skyscraper. So you need to go deep underground to build stronger foundations. And that's not the most exciting part of the job because there's no kitchens and no windows being built in your house and no nice bedrooms, etc. So you don't see the benefit straight away for the input you're putting in. The output and the input are not always correlated. So you do need to hire the right mindset from a management perspective to go, but I'm doing this for tomorrow. I'm not doing it for today. I'm doing it so one day, the next acquisition I buy, I can integrate it within a month because I've got a platform to integrate it into. Mm -hmm. So I think having that, in our case, it was we called it the one iris pillar, 
building upon the One Iris strategy was core to everything we wanted to do. Uh, and we remunerated people to do that. And actually, it's hard to, to get it started, but eventually it snowballs and it pays off really quickly because people see the benefits of working as part of one organization and being able to figure out that this customer has actually bought three products from you and you don't have three separate sales teams that are competing against each other, trying to sell them mm. three different products. Because in our case, we have more than 100 products we sell to over 100,000 customers. So it becomes a big headache if you don't have the right systems yeah. in place. Um, you know, being able to speak to your colleagues in the, in the kitchen and you're all on the same benefits packages and you're all on a bonus scheme, all of those things, you can see benefits um, pretty quickly if you put the right effort, but it requires investment. And HG have put in more than 120 million pound of investment in the last three years in IRIS, excluding any M&A investment. Outside of the acquisitions. Outside of acquisitions to uh, build systems, processes, products to move us to a cloud business, for example. So uh, we've been very lucky with their support. And when I say they've put it in, we're a profitable business. So they've allowed us to reinvest our profits back in the business and have never taken any dividends out. Um, and if you do that, mm -hmm. if your strategy is long term, which, you know, we've been very lucky that we're owned by investors who look at Iris as a long-term asset, um, then the more you invest, the, the, the more ability you have to provide your customers and your employees with a platform for scale so you can mm. be around for another 40-odd years. And I always say when I go to my board and ask for investment and say, we'd like to spend X million of our money on this particular area we're going to get our money back three years from now they will say we'll let you spend double how much faster can you go so we are very very lucky genuinely to be owned by investors who have got long-term vision for the business we are building um, and really proud of what we have built as a result quite rightly so so in going to the US um, which also is another another uh, market that many of our members are trying to enter or um, yeah. uh, are there now um, how have you it's obviously working extremely well in you know the numbers you, you quoted earlier uh, how have you how have you made that work did you make acquisitions into the US initially or did you go there organically um, we made acquisitions um, originally we had made acquisitions in the UK that happened to have products that were also sold in the US and again bringing it back to our ethos. Our ethos is we are the market leaders. Our expertise is deep um, and we win by laser focusing on a few things rather than, you know, focusing uh, on, on many, many things, which means you're not going to succeed at all of them. Mm. So we know the accountancy market in particular really, really well. That's how Iris started its roots 44 years ago. We have diversified now into HCM and education, but our roots were in the accountancy market. And we've been doing compliance for accountants for the last 44 years, as I said. We lead the market on that. Um, we file more with the UK government than all of our competition put together. Yeah, that was we, another stat I read. Yes. <laughs> large, largest third-party tax filer in the UK. Exactly. And, and, and the most compliant as well. So on average, a tax return that's filed with HMRC probably has an accuracy rate between 70 to 80%. Iris's accuracy rates are 98%. So if you buy Iris, uh, you will get your tax return right. We get it right for you first time every time. So we have a lot of DNA in that space. So as we try and grow our business, when you are the market leader, you've got to then look into um, different markets to expand on because being a market leader is great, but it also means you run out of runway at some point. Addressable market, isn't it? Absolutely. So you've got to expand your TAM, uh, your total addressable market. And we looked into the US primarily because we'd had, as I said, a couple of businesses we bought in the UK that were selling there. We then look at, looked into that customer base and said, how good are these businesses doing in the US? And they had 54 out of the top 100 CPAs as the customers. So we knew we had fantastic best of breed products, uh, which is, uh, is really important, I think. You've got to have the right solution for the customer. And we had some of the biggest CPAs in the world using them. Uh, we looked at the market. The CPA market in the US is bigger than the rest of the world put together. Uh, to put it in context, is at least 10 times bigger than the CPA market in the UK. 
um, we knew we had the expertise. Um, so we were laser focused again on saying, well, let's learn, let, let's, let's study the market and what can we take from the UK to the US? So interestingly, the two companies that um, are the duopoly in the US, as I mentioned, CCH or Walters Kluwer, as it's mm -hmm. also called, and uh, Thomson Reuters are also our competitors in the UK. So we understand they're formidable businesses uh, and it's fantastic to, you know, to have great competitors in the market and we play and we win and we lose and we win again against them in the UK. So we understand the players we are playing against. We understand the customers because CPAs across the globe face very similar challenges. And most importantly, their customers face very similar challenges. So fundamentally, the job of the CPA is to help their SME, their end customer. And today in the world, the majority of the business population is made out of SMEs. In the UK, 99% is SMEs. I think we've got 6 million businesses and 5.6 are SMEs. And in the US, about 93%. And they are the business population that are most affected by everything that's going on. You know, their supply chain was really affected in the UK by Brexit, now worldwide by the war. They've got interest rates higher than ever before and they've got more compliance than ever before and they don't have a finance team or an HR team because they can't always afford one. Um, so the role of the accountant becomes so important because the accountant can be that office of the CFO, they can be the extension to that SME's team and they can not only keep them compliant but they can help them, they can help them thrive and well, survive really in today's market and then thrive too because the accountant is a fantastic business advisor and Given that compliance is increasing, SMEs cannot pay Forex money for compliance because they can't afford it. Accountants can't charge Forex because they can't do that to their customers. So really, they have to diversify and become those true business advisors and use technology, which Iris provides, um, and use the knowledge that they have of, of advising many clients to help their end customer. What that means is that the macroeconomic conditions give us great tailwinds as a business, as Iris, to succeed in the current market because our role is to be the ally of these accountants. Mm -hmm. We don't go directly to their end customer, we go to them and provide them with the best software they need, not to just run their own practice, but to help the end customer. And there's gonna be more and more need for accountants today, globally. So what other market is there best for us to succeed? So that's why we double down Was on accountancy. Is there a reason why it, you're going now rather than you know, you've been you've been under PE ownership for a long time. We've talked about it already. Is it was there a trigger point where you thought, okay, now is the time to really? Did you did you feel you needed to reach a certain level of maturity before you not really, really no. took on the market? To be honest, I think we've always thought historically that compliance has been very difficult to travel across borders, which is true. So the taxonomy system in the UK is very different to that in the US. But as accountants' roles have become broader and they've become business advisors rather than just the, the the people that keep you compliant and make sure that you paid your taxes correctly then the tools that they need are not compliance driven only the tools they need are more around business advice and productivity and insight and those tools can travel so interestingly um whilst historically iris had sort of invested a lot in in what I would call compliance products in the last two to three years we've invested a lot more not only in cloud products which obviously again can travel globally, but also in products that are more around the productivity space, the insight space, the data space, uh, and those products you can sell in more than one location. So we had, as I said, bought a couple of products and businesses that sold across location. We had come to a point in the UK where we are growing and outgrowing the market, but it was time for us to think about another vertical. Mm. We'd already started education. Uh, five years ago, and it's super successful today. It grows double digits. We are the only provider that can give schools everything they need. So it was time for us, every two to three years we do this, to go, where's our next vertical? And for the reasons I mentioned, the US made sense. We know we know what, you know what the accountants need. The challenges are very similar. We've been doing it for a long time. We've got great expertise. We've managed to, we already had access to some great customers with these two products, so we went and bought uh, six businesses in total. We're across the Americas, we're in Canada as well. I've hired a really strong um, precedent now, as well as an SLT team of 10 people, a brand new investment to lead 
the 300 strong team of people we have out there, they've all come from competition. So they all come with a lot of DNA. So whilst Iris in the US has been only for two years there, the businesses we've bought have been around for 20 years. We've right. got best of breed products that our customers need um, that really answer to um, their challenges. Mm. And actually what we are not doing right now is attacking competition in the areas where they are strong. We are attacking competition in the areas where they're not so strong and winning, which is great to see. Huge market to go after, lots yeah. more growth. But I, I suppose you're, you, you've used your acquisitive engine Absolutely. to Absolutely. take yourself into that market and give yourself the best opportunity to get that initial foothold on which you can really build Acquisitive engine and then our, our great sort of commercial team and GTM focus that we have, because obviously what it means we've acquired now is 6,000 customers to date, and we've got seven or eight products we can offer them, and there's white space, yeah. because these products are complementary to one another, and they're being integrated to one another. So back to the point of, you've got to have value proposition for your customer, you've got to save them more time, you've got to make sure that you know they're willing to, to swap their existing supplier for their existing supplier for you because they save more time mm. using iris than anything else and time is the most expensive thing and the most valuable thing we have because they've got to focus on their business so uh, for us it's the buying sort of dna that we have but also the sort of value creation dna around what do our customers need and how can we cross sell and upsell and for that you need the investment i mentioned earlier around systems and a data warehouse uh, because unless you've got the data feeding in you don't really know what your customers are using you don't know if they love your product or not how many tickets they've got in support and having that single view is important for you to grow that account okay sounds really it's, it's gonna you've got amazing years ahead of you as well as <laughs> amazing years behind you as a, as a business in iris but um quite a large proportion of our audience are executives yeah you know so they're in discipline leadership roles yeah. in private equity back businesses yeah. and I thought what might be quite interesting in the rest of the conversation is is to explore talk about your experiences of uh, being an executive um, so the, the pathway to the CEO in as, yeah. a, as a private equity back CEO is you could be a founder yeah so you could have created the business and be the entrepreneur you could be a corporate ex uh, CEO or executive who's hired into the private equity back business and yeah. could be your exper first experience under private equity ownership. Obviously, we like people like that because we yeah. we think in pep talks we can definitely help them. Yeah. Uh, but then also is it's you could be a successor candidate. Um, mm -hmm. You could be somebody who's developed in a in a private equity environment and worked your way towards the CEO role, which is which is your story, yeah. really, isn't it? Because yeah. You've, you've, you were in private equity prior to IRS, yeah. you? you've had multiple private equity experiences. Yeah, so I actually joined IRS as a CFA, as I'm a chartered accountant back in November 2016. And at the time we thought we were going to have three years to sell the business <laughs> um, and we needed to get it ready for sale and, and make sure that it achieved its potential in that time frame. And then Brexit happened around a similar time, which meant that the exit was accelerated. So instead of us taking three years to do it, we uh, sold the business within a year and a half. So uh, I felt I had to accelerate the things that I wanted to do from a finance perspective to get Iris ready for sale and actually to build the foundations it needed to, to have from an insight and MI perspective um, to maximize its potential. What do I mean by that? Uh, my previous business had 80% of its revenues come from 20 customers. That's very easy. It's hard because when you lose a customer, it's then it's huge, right? So it's, that's not a very resilient business, but it's easy to manage from an MI perspective because for those 20 customers, you know exactly what they have for breakfast and everything else. You account manage them. Iris is very different to that. We've got 100,000 customers, and actually you can't influence every single customer on their own. And to get MI from your business, to understand what makes your customers stay with you or, how, or what gives them propensity to churn from you, you've got to have some great tools. You've got to look at each customer's cohort and understand whether it's a particular product, whether it's a particular sales team, whether it was a particular year that made a difference, a particular release that happened, um, whether it's something outside of your control in the market. And in order to do that, 
uh, you need to have a great data warehouse and you need to have some intelligent AI tools that you're interrogating so that you understand exactly how your ARR is snowballing. What do you start with? How much price can you put on and what's your customer's propensity to accept that price? How many customers are you losing and in what you're losing, what is controllable and non-controllable? Because some things like liquidations are outside your control, they'll happen all the time. Mm. Some things like consolidation in the market will happen all the time and some things are within your control. How much value do you lose from downgrades um, and people sort of churning out of a product, staying with you, but instead of keeping three products, they only keep two. So you need to know that as well. And then what's your ability to upsell, your ability to cross-sell, and then you've got new logos as well. So you've got to understand each of those parameters in order to create value. So for me, I'd started the investment of that and we needed all of that data to be able to sell Iris last time. Um, so I'd accelerated that and of course, Iris grows a lot. So of course there was going to be a lot more I wanted to learn. Uh, but the one thing that we that was clear to us when we sold Iris was that the business was a house of brands at the time it sold in 2018. And we needed to build the foundations I've been talking about and actually have one way of, you know, GTM and going after our customers, very common lined ways of how we build products. So we moved from divisionally run to functionally run uh, and brought in a new head of sales, new head of marketing in charge of the whole group. And as part of that, a COO role was created. And I was very lucky to be offered the opportunity to do that role. Uh, by my boss at the time, uh, Kevin Dady, who was the CEO, and also HG as the investors. Being blunt, uh, there was probably a million people better equipped than me on paper to do that role. But I've been very lucky to be surrounded by some amazing teams, mentors, and people I've worked for over time who have acknowledged and recognized that actually you don't need to have x many years of expertise to get to the top or do a job you actually need to have the right attitude you've got to you know be curious and ask the right questions you've got to work really hard and be output driven rather than input driven um, and then you've got to surround yourself with amazing people mm -hmm. uh, who do the things that you can't possibly do for yourself and i think it's about those leadership skills those are the important skills of how you succeed rather than having been a CFO for 20 years because sometimes... Well, we you've got to learn from somewhere, haven't you? you know, Absolutely. And when you've been doing something for a long time, it becomes harder and harder as well to maintain that growth mindset and to stay curious because there are a lot of people who've done it for so long and think they are the finished product. And actually, and we're always going to be a work in progress is how I, I think about the world. The world's a big place and the world around us changes absolutely constantly. Yeah. So we have to learn new things all the time. Yes, we can rely on things we have learned so far, but actually we've got to make new mistakes, we've got to fail fast, and we've got to be brave to learn new things and, and keep up with the world. So for that, what you need is not the expertise. For that, you need the right attitude mm -hmm. and you need those skills. So it's a long way of saying... I was given a fantastic opportunity that I took. And I think for me, that was the first time of being moving out of an area of expertise to running a team of people who were the experts. And it, it, it was really difficult, if I'm honest, because I couldn't back myself anymore. Because you didn't feel like you had the... I didn't have the expertise to do it, yeah, right? The, so the if, qualification. Yeah, if I'm, yeah. you know, when I was a CFO, I, first of all, I could spot if any of the team mm -hmm. were saying something that, you know, didn't quite sound okay. And yeah. if something really went wrong, I could always bank on myself to roll up my own sleeves and go and fix it. Yeah. When you are the COO, your job is to hire experts and then rely on them to do it. So you're always relying on, you are only as successful as the people that you have hired. Mm. And then obviously there's a learning curve to sort of really figure out, are they telling you the truth as it is, or are they telling you what you wanna hear? Uh, so for me, it started with hiring some amazing, amazing people um, and having constant open communication and keeping that curious mindset of asking a lot of questions. Mm. Uh, and I always say to my team, you only have to answer, you know, I'm going to ask lots of questions. You only have to answer it once. I will remember your answer. So you don't have to teach me lots of times because I'm genuinely interested when I ask these questions. I'll retain the information. But 
you have to help me learn as much as I can help you succeed. And I think the job becomes that of a football manager. I always say, mm. you don't need to play football. Your job is to have the right people in the right position to score the goals, as well as have some people on bench for substitutes because your team might run out of steam. Mm. They might reach a ceiling. They might not be on their top game that day. So you need succession planning. And that's really, really important. And if you genuinely as a leader are fully aware of what you're good at and what you're not so good at, then you can really hire really well to cover you on those bits that you're not so good at and then really spend the time to build those personal relationships with those people so there is trust and integrity and mm. all of that where you can have always open communications no matter how bad the news might be um, as well as you know learn from each other as well mm. so so I think that was my first probably experience of moving into a role outside of sort of my area of expertise was was the COO role a segue into the CEO Absolutely, role. Absolutely, yeah. it, was, it was like it was, was... I think it was my training ground, uh -huh. as well as probably my uh, my test period uh, that... Did you, you know, know that at the time? Uh, I knew that the, chair, the CEO that was at the time wanted to become chairman at some point in the future. Yeah, so his succession was very much part so, of the planning process. Absolutely. Because that's a value drag, isn't it? If you don't get your succession right, you can't necessarily move on and do the stuff you want to do next time around. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And that succession planning can take time, right? So yeah. uh, particularly at, at the level that we operate in, you've got to find that within your business that you've got to hire it from outside, but then spend the right time developing that person. So uh, by no means was the job guaranteed for me, but I knew that if I uh, succeeded in that role, that uh, there would be a you know, a great opportunity for me to become the CEO of the business. And um, if I'm honest, I've always looked at my career as to be the best person I can be in the job I'm currently doing, mm -hmm. rather than go, what's next, what's next? It's always suited me really well to make sure I really excel at what I'm doing and really enjoy it as well. I love what I do. And then that's bred more opportunities and it's got me to, to where I am. And I mean, I, I genuinely have the best job in the world yeah. <laughs> running a business that I genuinely love um, with a lot of challenges, but so many opportunities as well and surrounded by just amazing, amazing people. So I couldn't really ask for more. Yeah. I mean, you, you, it's, it's fabulous to hear you talk about it. and But the way you talk about it, it sort of sounds, almost sounds sort of, quite straightforward in you know hiring great people and you know it's um the football football manager analogy of you know pick the right team but actually finding the right people and hiring and retaining and developing that sort of a team um business those critical people that are going to help you deliver the value is actually really difficult and i think the success rate on hiring is again about you know one in three um and I, I know a lot of people in our community who are on that journey of um, succession planning and maybe yeah. the COO, probably the future successor to the CEO. Some, they talk about it quite a lot just in terms of you know, finding the right people, having the budget to afford the right people, um, and also then getting those people to own yeah. what they need to own. So have you got, have you got any tips for them? Have you got, how, um, how have you managed to do that? I guess what I'd say is, number one, that I do hire, there is a level of expertise, but you know, the people that are being brought in front of you haven't got to where they've got to without knowing what they're doing. Yeah. So you've got to assume that. For me, I hire a lot for competency and attitude. What you need to succeed at Iris is you've got to be resilient, for example, because there's a lot going on and you've got to pick yourself up and get up and go every day with the same enthusiasm as yesterday, regardless whether yesterday was a great day or not. Mm. Uh, so test on those things that matter to you, that your business needs rather than what on paper you think you might need. Uh, you know, curiosity is really important to me. I can't hire anybody that is um, thinking that they're a finished product. That's not gonna, that's not gonna work at Iris because we grow so quickly all the time, which means the moment that you've 
found the answers to the questions. I've changed the questions anyway. Uh, so you've got to have that growth mindset of going, what about this? What about that? So that's really important. So I think figure out the values that matter to you and matter to the business and hire for those and really, really stress test those. And I tend to see a person over a period of time and then get them to see a lot of people in the room uh, because I think it's a two-way thing. Uh, they should interview me and the business as much as we interview them. And if you see a person on different days of the week and different times of the day, you'll be able to have more access to see the true version of them rather than the version they put on mm. on an interview. And you'll be able to see consistency. And I think I say the same to them. Go and inter you know, be interviewed by all of the executive team because if we're all telling you a different story about where Iris is going, then clearly we're not aligned, so you shouldn't join this business. Be brutally truthful at the interview about the challenges that the job has, the amazing things about it, but also what this person is expected to do. Uh, because I think that's got to give you more chance of then succeeding, if I'm being honest. I tend to hire from network. My, my, my success rate from network is 80, 90%. And I, I, I... How do you do that? So do you, you go out and ask? Are you constantly sort of... I'm scanning for talent. Absolutely. And and speak to trusted people that I know to go, I'm looking for X, Y, Z. Can you recommend me somebody? Um, so that's quite important. I trust myself to be a good salesperson when it comes to bringing people in. So yeah. if you have the right candidate and they've got two or three job offers, then I think I can do a good sales pitch, a truthful but good sales pitch to bring them on a journey so that they feel they're on a, you know, they got on the bus and they want to be on the bus and they know where they're going. So I trust myself to um, hopefully uh, motivate or inspire somebody to want to work, to yeah. want to work at Iris, you know. Yeah. Um, I would say that you can't get it always right. So you've got to accept that you've got it wrong. And I have had to change people in the team. And that's really difficult, but it's the right thing for them and the right thing for the business. And most importantly, the right thing for the rest of the team as well, because mm. otherwise they get demotivated if somebody's not necessarily pulling their weight when they are. Because when you work for private equity, you've got to remember um, either you're on the second round or third round, so you've got your own money invested. Yeah. Or even if you're just new to private equity, you've all got sweet. And the value of that sweet equity depends on how good the team performs as a team not your individual contribution yeah. so you've got to cross that path together you've got to cross the line together so you can't carry anybody as nice as they might be who has reached their ceiling or isn't performing to the standard the business needs so I make those decisions really fast but always with dignity and all of that uh, we've got an executive coach for the team uh, to make us aligned on the same goals. coach for same coach yeah. they have separate that, that same coach can provide individual support to the team, but we've got a team coach. Uh, so we look into our common goals and values. And the last thing I would genuinely say is hire somebody that's different. Don't hire exactly the same people as you. Diversity. Diversity is so important because that's the only way your team is going to grow and bring new ideas to the table. Mm. So when you are, again, when you are an expert, when I was a CFO, I probably knew I had a vision of what good looks like in finance and I would hire from the big four or whatever it was. Uh, now I look more for diversity and the paths of life these people have come from and what new ideas they're going to bring to the table because for as long I think our our differences are our strengths for as long as we have common values we've got to have common moral compass and that kind of stuff uh, but beyond that the more different we are the better yeah uh and i think that's proven to be more successful than hiring to the same cut and the same cloth because people just become yes people yeah and that's not good for yeah. you for the business for anybody and the final final thing i'll say is really understand what people's strengths are because i think we spend quite a lot of our life from being young being told what we're good at and what we're not good at and we have appraisals and people go, this is your development plan. I really think when you've got to a certain age, if you're not good at something, you're never going to be great yeah. at it. It's too late. You know, like you're not naturally passionate about it. You're not interested in it. You're not curious enough about it, whatever. So if you focus your efforts on that, you're going to be at best average and mediocre. You're going to be a seven out of 10. Yeah. You're better off focusing your efforts on what you're strong at. So really through that interview process, understanding what your key strengths are, 
so everybody's operating at a 10 out of 10 mm -hmm. is important for your team so that the people are self-aware and go, I'm passing you this ball and you've got it now yeah. uh, because you're the, you're the expert on that, not me. I recognize that this is where my limits are. I know enough to be dangerous. I know enough to ask the right questions, but I am not the expert. The ball is with you, mate. And that person has picked that ball up and never drops it. And I think that's really key for a team to succeed. We've had an, an amazing amount of your time. Thank you very much. Thank just you. Just got one more question. Yeah. It's really, it's a really quick one. Depends. We, could, I, we could, I talk a lot. We you could probably do quick. another whole podcast on it. But <laughs> I mean, as, as a CEO, so how do you think about your development? And you're talking about the importance of a growth mindset. Where do you look uh, for inspiration in terms of your own growth and your yeah. own development? Um, Interesting. So, so we have so HG have their own Hive community uh, for C level suites. So actually, I meet up with the HG CEOs every two weeks uh, to discuss different topics. So I learn from my peers. Um, I probably learn the most from my team uh, because I've hired some amazing people, and they're different, and they bring new ideas to the table. And then. Uh, I probably learn quite a lot, actually, from my children. I've got two little boys, seven and 11, and they are the most curious people I know, and they grow in front of me much faster than any adult that I have seen grow, and they inspire me to ask all of the questions I wouldn't dare ask normally, uh, because that's how you grow. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And of course, I read a lot, and... Um, but I think, it's, I think it's like the authenticity in your... A willingness to show vulnerability in terms of, you know, not knowing the answer to every every difficult How else problem will we and grow, question. Right? Who does? I mean, those people you talked about in terms of not having the growth mindset. Well, yeah. I, I don't know. We're, we're we're in a community of very successful CEOs, but um, I don't know any of them that would come with an attitude of like, I know it all. It's, it's like absolutely. It's the end of learning, then, isn't it? I, I completely agree with you. And I think that you genuinely have to mean the questions you're asking. Don't ask a question for the sake of it. There's nothing more annoying. Yeah. So be present, listen. And that's why I say to my team, you only have to teach me once, I will remember it because I genuinely am interested in what you have to say. Mm. And you'd like to think that you are clever enough to retain the information because that's important when you're leading. Um, but you've got to you grow a lot more by asking questions than assuming things because the world around us as i said changes much faster than we as humans are able to do brilliant thank you very much thank you for Lovely having to me talk to you. you too thank you